Hi, I'm Abby Ellsworth. I'm a civilian interviewing law enforcement from around the country. My goal is to tell the real stories of law enforcement, the ones that don't make the news. Today, I'm welcoming back to the podcast, retired Sergeant Nick Bauer, who was with the Seattle Police Department for 30 years and retired just under a year ago. He worked many units, including robbery, major crimes task force, and the force investigation team. His most recent role was as Sergeant in the wellness unit, a role he was in during the 2020 riots, which presented an unprecedented need for officer wellness and support. Nick also is a founding member and executive director of Code 4 Northwest, which is a nonprofit organization that provides confidential support to all first responders and their families in Washington state. I thought it was important to talk about getting help, especially this time of year when things can be tough for a lot of people. And I wanted to do this as a follow-up to my conversation with Trisha Minkler, who was interviewed in the episode right before this. Trisha lost her job in law enforcement after a series of events and seeking treatment. She got treatment all on her own and is grateful, despite the outcome, that she's in recovery. I wanted to talk with Nick about how Code 4 Northwest can help someone like Trisha get the help they need. You do not have to do this on your own, and you do not have to lose your job. Nick, let me welcome you back. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me again. You were my very first interview. Wow. Seems like forever ago, right? Right. Well, you know, it was September of 2020. And, you know, as we were talking about before the interview, things were pretty bad back then. Yes, they were. As you look back on it now with two years hindsight, what does it look like? I guess I have a unique perspective two years later, just because I'm now retired and I've had a chance to what I call uh, learn how to be a civilian again, which is a good thing, but it was a, a definite transition. I mean, back then, you know, there were constant uh, violent riots going on in the city of Seattle and all over the country. I was witnessing fellow officers being injured becoming unable to cope from the massive stress and demands placed on them. And that regard for police, you know, that we were all kind of hiding. I think you actually didn't even use my name um, in that first interview, you know, in the interest of preserving my safety and my family's safety. You know, I think those concerns have subsided for the most part. What I see now is life starting to get back to kind of a normative level, I think. You see people out and about and for the officers, sadly, what I'm seeing in you know my role with Code 4 is a real spike in, in people sort of, I think they're kind of, once they're out of the, out of the fray, it's, it's an aftermath scenario now where they realize just how stressed out they were and how unable they are now to cope and process some of the massive demands and stress that was placed on them during that time. I was going to ask you what you were seeing now. You know, several officers were on the right lines for 60, 70, 80 days in a row. And, you know, it just, it's not normal uh, for them to be up all night, you know, work on deficit sleep, getting pelted with all kinds of insults and uh, assaults, and just not feeling safe. And, you know, a lot of officers that I've talked to, it's, you know, they're at work uh, doing what they signed up to do and fulfilling their duty and their assignment, mission assignments. And then at the same time, worrying about their 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 family at home and maybe, you know, the, the possibility there's a lot of doxing going on back then. Uh, people, uh, you know, even uh, Chief Best had people coming to her house, which just kind of kicks things up to another even higher level. So these officers and firefighters, because they were involved in a lot of this, were, um, and dispatchers, I you know, we sometimes forget about the dispatchers, were on this 
constant state of what I would really call combat awareness for months at a time. It was a horrible time for law enforcement. I think it's a horrible time for our communities. I'm thankful that we have ways to uh, to help those people kind of process things. For me, it's even more extreme because now I'm a civilian guy. And honestly, you know, I've gotten a bit soft, I think, because it really upsets me when I think about a lot of these officers who, you know, by and large, are much younger than me, you know, how much they're having to suffer uh, the consequences and the aftermath of, of all that commotion. Well, and, you know, for people who didn't live here, the fear was real. I mean, I knew a few officers. One was at the time back then, the PIO for the Seattle Police Department stepped down because her children were getting harassed at school. I had friends with thin blue line bumper stickers who got run off the road. And I know of a deputy who, you know, with the King County Sheriff's Office, they have a take home car. And so he could not pick his son up at school. He could not go to his games in his take-home car because of the backlash. I know f- officers that took down photos of themselves in their homes from academy or what have you, you know, and I personally was afraid to start this podcast. I took down videos I had done to protect the officers who were in those videos. I mean, it was, if you didn't live here or Portland or some of the other markets, I don't think people understood how bad it was. But you did, and and I want to point that out. Uh, I I just want to say you know how how much I appreciate your efforts. Now that I'm on the outside, it really gets me emotional to understand people like you actually have the courage as a citizen to look out for us and to tell our stories. It's uh, it's very meaningful, and I I really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, thank you. That means a lot to me. That's why I do this, you know. And I keep doing it, and it's uh, I, I can't. Stop. I, I just don't. Uh, it's a mission. <laughs> These are honorable people, right? These are yeah. brave, honorable people that sign up. And, and maybe they sign up because it's a job. They need a job. And it's a job that they they think, hey, I can do that job and, and maybe make a little bit of a difference. Uh, then it turns into this 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 test of your fortitude and and an and, and, and absolute test of your courage. I would argue that, you know, 99.9% of us, we, we stand up and we pass all those tests on behalf of the citizenry um, of the community. It's, it's a brave and honorable job. And I, I just, uh, I think anything that we as a society can do for our first responders, you know, it's, I think it's healthy for, for citizens. It's healthy for the first responders. Uh, and the mission is absolutely necessary to maintain a lifestyle that we have enjoyed by and large for uh, all of my life. Right. Well, one of the things I'm learning in doing this podcast, which I didn't really know until now, is the toll that the job can take on you. I mean, I've I've heard officers say, you know, you you really don't step away from it without losing a little bit of yourself. And I wanted to mention Trisha Minkler, who was in my previous episode, and talk to you about what happened with her. She wants to share her story so that people will make that phone call to get help. And I want any officer listening who feels that they need help to not be afraid to make that call. So if we could do a little breakdown, just, I know you've heard the episode. I didn't know that an officer could lose his or her job because they sought treatment. How can we make sure officers know that they can get help and not lose their job? 
Yeah, good questions. You know, I'm, I, I know very little to nothing about what precipitated her termination. But I can tell you that it is the antithesis of what we've been trying to do is a peer support and helping community for our first responders, that if you seek help, that there are employment implications to your seeking help under that equation of, uh, well, this person is broken and so broken they have to seek treatment, which makes them now, you know, a major liability risk. Mm. Um, I mean, I would actually, uh, um, um, I, I think the the better equation is someone was brave enough to understand that they're not processing things properly. They sought, you know, full speed help. They invested in getting back to normal, whatever normal is, of course, and they actually become a better prospect liability wise uh, and employment wise than the average bear. So I'll, I just don't get how a, a department who knows that the job can literally destroy their employees. How can they not take a step back and go, okay, this person has gone into overload. I'm, we as a department are going, in a city are going to support this person uh, and help them get back to their former self. Police officers, first responders are, I'm pretty sure they talked to my third grade uh, girlfriend to see what, if I was a good guy even back then. You go through psychological, medical, physical, background, uh, lie detector, all these tests. And so you're pretty much a pristine um, employee prospect when you're once you're hired, right? And somehow, uh, all of a sudden, X amount of years later and X amount of hundreds usually uh, exposures to trauma, they become unable to cope. And, you know, step one is they, they start to self-medicate. Um, quite often, they don't want to go to the doctor. We're supposed to be the fixers. Uh, and then they're in this hole. So, you know, how, how a, an employer can't understand that and doesn't support it is honestly beyond me. That's all I can say about Trisha's situation. I can tell you that we uh, helped her to the full extent that we, we can. And true to our, um, our motto at Code 4, one call of community support, you know, uh, she wants to get out there and help people now. She wants to have groups and she's actually going to school now and to be a, a counselor, which I just, I totally applaud. And we will support her in, in her efforts moving forward. You know, she, she's a good example of, of, of actually a success story, short her career, on, on what happens when people do get help, right? Well, that's true. That is true. So for someone out there listening who, you know, she talked a lot about she didn't want to make the call. She was afraid to make the call. She got into treatment on her own. Uh, she had a partner who saw that she was struggling and didn't help her. I asked her, did he help you? And she said, no. And I said, why? And she said, because he didn't know what to do. He didn't know what to say. And so it really impressed upon me that the extent to which this mental health is still not talked about, or law enforcement is still afraid to reach out for, I don't know, reasons of, you tell me what stops someone. Well, and I always give the example of, you know, when I talk to do outreach and talk to officers, dispatchers, firefighters in their, their departments, especially police officers, they're very clear. If someone, if there's a call, shots fired, one of their buddies is being shot at, 
they're very clear on what they're going to do. They're going to get in their car, going to race to the scene and um, address the threat, uh, however they they need to, and 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 protect their buddy, right? And I think they're clear in in motivation as to what they would do if someone is you know drinking and they get in the patrol car and they can smell alcohol or they're not acting right or somehow they come to find out that they're not coping really well. It, it's it's a much more difficult process to to address. What do you say? I mean, saying anything, recognizing any maladaptive behaviors or maybe policy violations because of uh, their, their, their inability to process their, their trauma and stress has huge implications like getting fired, right? Or being put on admin leave or being suspect. So it's, it goes straight to a livelihood scenario. And I think it's just, honestly, I think it's a very scary thing. We don't have a lot of repetitions. I think it's getting better than it was back in, you know, 30 years ago when I first started the business, but there's still a long ways to go, right? It's just, I think it's just, it's low, what do they call it? Low frequency, very high impact, these, these kind of scenarios. So, you know, I, I don't blame a fellow officer for not knowing what to do. I would implore anyone who's listening to to apply themselves in some psychoeducation, understand what it is that does destroy us, right? And understand that, you know, repeated exposure to trauma is going to have some sort of implication on your health or your life pretty much 100% of the time at some level, right? Some people get out and never have to go to treatment or have a counselor. Others um, have to retire early because they just can't cope with the stresses of the job. And honestly, there are some officers, I think, I always tell them, look, man, I'm, I'm a guy that can see from the, the other side now on the retired side. And like I said at the very beginning, I'm learning how to be a, a civilian again. I'm kind of softening up, and I'm, I'm very happy about that. It is a long process. But it's like, you look, this might be a, a, a gift from above for you that you, you're not supposed to be in this business. Yeah, and, you know, I, I, I don't want to get ahead of things, but I think, you know, my health uh, implications largely due to stress applied on the on the job. Right. The headline was the wellness sergeant has a heart attack. Right. Right. I mean, so and I and I want to interject here that you have a heart attack, you go to the doctor. But if you have a mental health problem, you potentially don't. You know, it's like it's right. OK if you have a medical problem, but so the stress of the, was it that time period in particular, or was it a, the 30 years or both? I, I think it was both. We're talking about my heart attack. Your heart attack. Yeah. Which occurred in, what was it? October 19th, 2020. Jeez, really? So that was a month after I interviewed you. Yes. Wow. Yeah. And I was actually on the right lines that night uh, before. And one of the officers was badly injured. I was extremely upset about that. And going home, I just was having a hard time losing the my my angst over that whole night and scenario. Uh, next morning, wake up, chest is hurting, neck's hurting, all the signs, and end up going to the ER. And, and they said, "Congratulations, you're having a heart attack." <laughs> oh my god! Uh, and Lily, you know. Went through a process, got ambulance to a cath lab, and woke up a few hours later with a stent in my right coronary artery that was 100% occluded, 100% blocked. I, I believe, and the doctors believe, it was a combination of um, stress throughout the years. 
not just in probably not just you know stress related to the job, but life is stressful too. I mean, a lot of non first responders that have heart attacks, but I think the riots and all the stuff you know we were on twelve on twelve off, which actually kind of transfers on to you know sixteen seventeen on and a few off to get a little sleep and, and repeat. I think that just kind of spiked things and, and caused the event. Because the doc said I could have been walking around with a mostly or all occluded, completely occluded uh, right coronary artery for 15, 20 years. Hmm. So I think it's a combination, which, which speaks to the necessity for uh, individuals and departments to be proactive in looking out for first responders' health, right? Um, supporting getting annual checkups, supporting, you know, kind of doing the deep dive and and, and screening for things that typically kill us. Uh, coronary artery, artery disease is one big one. Uh, cancer is another one brought about sometimes by, you know, stress brought upon the, uh, put upon the body from either chemicals, uh, usually the case with firefighters, you know, just the, the stress of the job. And, and look out for your mental health. A lot of this stuff is, you know, that stress activates your limbic system and um, causes this fight between your sympathetic, parasympathetic nervous system and things like cortisol. They're, they're great to keep you alive in a firefight, but horrible on your longevity. Right. So we know this stuff. Hopefully in my lifetime or in, in the near future, we actually have an efficient way to look out for our first responders. So it doesn't have to destroy them, but they don't have to be a martyr for a job that they signed up to, to do an honorable job. Right. Let's talk about how Code 4 works and helps. And we're talking specifically officers right now. I know you help all first responders. But how is it that you're able to help and not lose their job? I know you've helped a lot of people who go back to work. And, and I also want to emphasize that, that Code 4 Northwest can be just a phone call, right? If you just need someone to talk to. It doesn't mean that you have to go into the treatment. It doesn't mean you have to get counseling, right? right? So I do want to emphasize that you have a 24-hour confidential support line. So if you just want to talk, you can just talk. So tell me how Code 4 is able to help an individual, an officer who does want to return to law enforcement and is able to without getting fired. So we we offer an array of services through the hotline and directly, because now we have enough people out there that are, I would call code four ambassadors who can, who can help in person too, kind of interspersed throughout all the departments in the state. We'll go level one, tier one would be a, a peer support talk, maybe a salty old sergeant like me. Uh, you're having some uh, hard time processing things. You're, and I've had these, these conversations with people who honestly, I, I have a pretty good idea who they are, but the, the primary foundation of code four is confidentiality. So we just don't discuss things until they kind of come forward. And I say, hey, by the way, my name's Nick. And, oh, are you uh, Nick from Seattle? And sometimes it kind of happens that way. I mean, the next tier is referral to culturally competent clinicians throughout the state. We actually screen the, the clinicians to make sure that they actually know how to address and treat trauma. Uh, they have training experience in that realm with some of the common modalities, you know, EMDR, brain spotting, ART therapy. Uh, there's a whole bunch of others that are super effective. That's probably the, the most probably the most efficient way to address things, kind of put the small fire out before it becomes a big fire where you're unable to cope, you're drinking a fifth of whiskey a day, and you know, eating a couple of Xanax. If someone is in that state, though, we actually go out and screen 
treatment centers again to make sure it's a safe place and in you know this environment a safe place for law enforcement to heal is a is a big thing uh we don't want them cohabitating with uh, court ordered felons <laughs> it might not be pro police and, and trust me that there are places where that that's happened uh, uh, sadly not not within code 4 but yeah. we want them to be able to focus on themselves get the proper treatments really delve deeply into whatever their issues are usually it's a co-occurring issue they're traumatized they're stressed out they don't want to go to the doctor and you know, risk losing their job they start self-medicating if you have a good effective treatment center that can treat both give them 30 to 60 days sometimes even 90 days to really get back on their feet and then support their recovery after they get out. It's a great thing. Uh, we don't talk to departments without absolute express permission from you know what I would call a client. And I think it's just better for everyone to stick with that plan of supporting our first responders no matter what, helping them get better. But do, So if you send someone to treatment, does the department know about it or can they go without the department's knowing? Because that could be a 90-day... 30, 90, 120-day right. absence. Depends. Some departments, and I'm not going to name them because I want to keep the relationship pristine, will put someone on admin leave, hide them in a unit for that time period, uh, and then you know kind of reintegrate them, which is something I'm super grateful for. Otherwise, they can use their own sick time, and it's really none of their business. They can do an FMLA leave of absence uh, where they can actually get remunerated still if they have sick time balances. Uh, the sad situation often is if someone's not coping well, they typically don't have a huge personal time off balance, sick time balance or vacation or anything. So we have to talk to them about, look, um, you know, what's your life worth? There's this opportunity for you to get better. It's pretty much guaranteed things are not going to get better if you don't do something, but it's also going to mean you're going to get a zero paycheck perhaps for, you know, a number of pay cycles. That can be an issue. If code four was super well-funded, we would help uh, on that realm. Well, we just simply can't at this point. Another way we're structured and getting the level of funding. And we do want to talk about funding. I do want to say that you are a nonprofit, completely volunteer. You depend on donations. And so we will include the best way to donate is at your website. Code4NW.org. And the four is the number four. Yes. Things have been very busy. And when you're an all-volunteer all organization, it's kind of hard to say business is really good. <laughs> I'm grateful that we're a heavily utilized uh, resource, but always concerned about uh, having the uh, ability to help people um, with co-pays for, for treatment. Uh, you know, if there's one counseling session and the copay is, say, $50, uh, most, you know, first responder budgets can bear that, right? But if you need a, a body of sessions, which is usually the case, 10, 15 sessions, now all of a sudden we're talking about, you know, $500, $750 for these uh, copays or more, that becomes a barrier for, for their getting help. And that's where we, 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 we uh, try to help as, as often as possible. And same with, you know, getting a treatment uh, as often as possible. We'll uh, try to help with transportation, get them a flight down there. If there's co-pays for certain things, we do what we can. We can't do as much as I'd like. We, we do as much as we can to help them. Gosh, this year, I've, I haven't counted exactly, but I, I bet we're in the, in the neighborhood of roughly 60 first responders being sent to inpatient treatment. So you start doing the math, knowing what airfare costs and you know uh, inflation, all that kind of stuff. Uh, I'm very grateful for the generous donors that contribute to us uh, on a regular basis. 
obviously, you know, the more we get, the more we do. Um, and it goes directly to uh, helping first responders and their family members. One thing I think that's come up from COVID is a lot of children first responders have have surfaced and been put on our radar needing advanced help, uh, which is something we really didn't see too much of in the past. And so uh, the more we can do to, to help the children too, you know, if you look at the scenario of a, of a son or daughter who is 26 years old, they've aged out of being able to be covered by mom or dad's insurance. They don't have a career type job yet. Maybe they don't even have a job and they're, you know, they're needing some advanced treatment. It just kills me not to be able to help those people full speed. And I was um, actually listening to your podcast. Code 4 also has a podcast on the website, which is very good. And I would encourage people to listen. They might see themselves in these stories and relate to the journey of the people who are you're talking to. So I think that's also a really helpful resource. But so to to break it down, to be really clear, it code for Northwest is for all first responders and from talking to you many times, first responders include law enforcement, fire, paramedics, EMTs, dispatch, and call takers, corrections officers, trauma nurses, flight nurses. I do want to do a little, just a little sidebar. You were the first person to tell me about trauma for dispatchers and call takers. I never knew, I wouldn't have a means of knowing what the stress is for them. And, you know, I've since done some interviews. Uh, One was with Drew Breezy, who was a lieutenant in Florida, started as a dispatcher and then ended up as a lieutenant in the comm center. And he's very passionate about recognizing what he calls the first first responder. So for sure. But you were the one who said, you know, imagine you're sitting there, you're hearing the screams or you're hearing you're in front of a computer. You don't know what's going on or you're in dispatch sending officers or firefighters into God knows what. You don't know what happens once they arrive. I mean, you described this to me and I was like, whoa. Yeah, it's that whole, you know, the the devil imagined is scarier than the devil in front of you. You know, and the gosh, I mean, in the case of Seattle, I know that they are, It's it's been a regular common thing that they are what they call mandoed, which means you're sitting in a chair, could be the most stressful, busiest night of your career. And then two hours before you're done, they say, hey, we're short. You need to work another shift or you need to work another five, six hours. And I've just never, that's been going on for years. I've never understood, you know, how it is that more of those dispatchers don't just, you know, fall into a pile of mush on the floor. But then you have to keep in mind now, there's not a lot of people signing up to to be uh, police officers. And also, I think, uh, first responders in general, fire, etc. So now you have that same Mando situation being applied to police officers, firefighters. Corrections um, officers. The corrections jail. officers. Yeah. Back-to-back shifts. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, again, that reality, you know, departments knowing that that's a reality and not being willing to support someone when they when they kind of fall off, you know, the fall by the wayside and, and need some help. I'm sorry. I just don't understand it. Right. How could you not help your people? Right. And then the process for someone, to be clear, is they can call the confidential number. And if it's just a conversation, it's just a conversation. And or it could be 
a few sessions with a therapist, or it could be inpatient treatment. If you call, that doesn't mean that someone's sending you to treatment. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah, not. We're not a uh, intake line for a treatment center or group of treatment centers or anything like that. That's part of the of the of the array of services, but it's it's not the the primary function. I I'm a believer in you know try to have a continuum. And if it's like I said, you know, we can put up a small fire. You know, they're they're starting to have some some issues. They're sitting at home you know, maybe drinking or staring at the tube or the wall, just uh, dreading their next shift and not participating in the rest of their life. You know, in the police business, we call that a clue. (laughs) Maybe they should do something to, you know, get a little help, get a little tune-up, cool little term now, they call it an oil change. Get yourself a little emotional, mental oil change, often. Is there anything we're not covering about Code 4? Are there any stories you want to tell? I'd like to point out, and you brought up our, our podcasts, which thank you for bringing those up because um, Jeff does those is just, just a incredible job. And he's, he's a retired firefighter himself, but you listen to some of the stories of some of those people on there. And many of them are now code four helpers. Steve Johnson's one that his story, he just, he bravely addressed his issues being a religious guy, a family guy, have a whole family full of young kids it's like, man, I need, I need to do this right now. He went after it and, and conquered things. He just uh, celebrated three years of sobriety. He's just doing, he's just, he's doing great. He's, he's one of my go-to people now, you know, Devin Edwards. It's kind of um, sad and remarkable in a, in a bad way that both she and Trisha were close to completing suicide with their service weapons, but for some hot calls for service. You know, you think about that reality. It's like, wow, they're literally like about to end their life. But the priority of helping exactly. others trumps exactly. that, that impulse. That says just, a lot. You know, since chills down my spine, right? Yeah. You know, and I, I, I do have to say that females in, in law enforcement, you know, I, I think they have a bit harder job than, than males, honestly. I think you know that I was the equal employment opportunities uh, investigator for the department for a period. And I can't tell you how many times a female would come in after being exposed to all kinds of really pretty horrible behavior towards them uh, in treatment. And they say, well, I don't want to be that girl, but and I'm like, what does that mean? Because they, they feel like they have to be 20% better than the average bear to be a valid part of the, of the group. So hopefully that changes and subsides. But Devin's story and and, and Trish's, I really applaud their courage to step up and, and actually talk about the realities of their life and how desperate things have become, right? Yeah. And I have no idea how many lives Code 4 has saved, and I really just try to avoid even speculating just because I, I don't know why, but I, I just feel like it's sort of a self-important stance to say we've saved X amount of lives. But I will say that I do believe we've saved some lives. I, I really do. That's, you know, thanks to, to the system uh, that's in place, thanks to the people who are involved, like Devin, like Tricia, like Steve and others, Jeff, Pat Ellis, who's a chaplain, works just uh, tirelessly to make sure things are running well and we get enough volunteers. You know, it's a great system. Yeah. And if you're not in the Washington state area, do you know of other organizations? If I have, I have listeners from around the country, do you know of resources? I know Tricia mentioned some, and I included those links in her episode notes. So I don't have any direct 
much direct interaction, uh, but I've heard Copline is a very good resource. As I do know, in Arizona, there's a fabulous group. I, I wish Code 4 could grow up and be just like, and that's uh, the 100 Club of Arizona. Uh, and if you look at their website and you, you look at their history and, and how they were developed, that's a really cool story, and they do a lot. They're, they're funded well enough where they can say an officer is uh, bravely injured in the line of duty or, God forbid, killed in the line of duty. They'll actually pay for the family's mortgage for a number of months and their bills, something we can't do. But I would love to be able to do that, uh, to go to a family. And we you know there's a recent um, line of duty death in Bellevue. Uh, and one of the realities that um, the families always face when their loved one is killed is their their health insurance ends at the end of the month that that person was the officer was killed or first responder was killed so now you've got all this stress but if you're picture if you're you know in, in this Bellevue officer's case you know a wife and two little kids no health insurance it's just one more nail in the, the coffin of your ability to cope so it'd be really nice I didn't know that I thought I know that if a officer commits suicide everything ends like that minute I didn't know for line of duty death same you know, so being able to give them some breathing room, that would just be so wonderful. It's like, hey, yeah. you know what? Don't worry about your health insurance for six months. We got that. Or don't worry about your mortgage for X amount of months or something like that. Right. You know, that would just, the 100 Club, they, they do a fabulous job. And I'm, I guess I'm actually kind of envious of their ability to help their people. Well, when you talk about the uh, recent line of duty death of Bellevue Police Officer, Bellevue is a suburb of Seattle. And I believe it's their first line of duty death. Ever, right? Yeah. I mean, that's devastating to them. It's devastating to the community. You know, your department lost Lexi Harris in 2021, canine Jedi in uh, early 22. Do you find, are there more calls that come into Code 4 in the wake of a line of duty death? We try to hike up our outreach you know, in, in situations like that. And so we do get people who are reaching out just because it's just the grief gets the best of them. But I, you know, I, th I think the most notable spike in activity is the aftermath from all the riots, which were followed by um, COVID. It's, you know, we, we're, we're getting, gosh, five calls a day, oftentimes, which doesn't seem like much. But those are calls from people who have decided, okay, I can no longer suck it up. And I need to do something now. Um, What's a typical call? I mean, I know there's no typical, just like there's no typical traffic stuff. You know, we've had a number of officers. Probably a good example is officers who were on bikes or some kind of um, assignment during the riots in Seattle. Uh, not just Seattle officers, but a lot of other off uh, departments helped out uh, in a huge way. Just saying, man, I'm. <laughs> I can't get out of bed. I mean, I mean, multiple officers over this last roughly nine months, I would say, can't get out of bed. They're drinking. They're, they're, you know, their spouses want to divorce them. They're, they, they, they're, they're out of sick time. Otherwise, they would leave. They don't have any other skills, or they would quit. And they need the income. Just a hot mess at a, at a higher level, much higher level than what I would say the the average scenario was before the riots and COVID. And then for officers in the state who weren't on the front lines, who weren't in, in Seattle, it's a big state. What kind of what kind of issues are they having? 
So, and this is, that's a good point because one of the talks I always give is a lot of people, they'll say, oh, you're, you know, you were a Seattle sergeant and you were in the riots and you were in WTO. Wow. Um, My stress is I haven't been exposed to anything like a Seattle person is it's like, okay, hang on. Every time there's a shots fired or there's tones come out or you turn your lights and sirens on your vehicle, whatever it is, or you have to dispatch a whole bunch of of people to a, to a, a big situation your limbic system is getting activated, right? Your, your fight or flight, you're getting at or close to your fight or flight condition, which has the same implications as someone who actually responds and finds something traumatic in a scene. Again, it's that cumulative stress scenario, right? And even though maybe, say, a Richland or a Pasco or a Spokane officer wasn't being docs like Seattle cops were, the implication for them is, is huge, right? They're next. They could be next. The other kind of phenomenon that I see is if you're a Seattle or a big city officer, you're exposed to traumas quite often, right? And I think your system kind of gets steeled up or built up around that, right? Whereas if you're in a small department, you might only see, you know, one or two gory homicide scenes in your entire career, if that, right? And so your ability to process and cope with those high-speed situations is going to be, it's not going to be as strong as it would be for someone who's getting nightly multiple exposures. So I'm not saying it's preferable to be a, you know, a big city cop or firefighter or dispatcher, but, you know, at least your, I think your system kind of gets built up, right? The negative implications of that, though, are someone like me, where, you know, you've been in a pretty high production mode for 30 years. All of a sudden, you're retired, and you're like, okay, now, now, what do I do? I mean, who am I? You know, how do I? It's my famous little thing now. How do I? How do I civilian? How do I? You know, learn to stop carrying a gun everywhere and looking at everything in this tactical scenario. Or, yeah. um, you know, I put to one person, I'm now realizing that I don't necessarily have to have a plan to kill everybody I encounter. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> Sounds kind of crazy for a civilian to hear that, but. You know, any law enforcement person is, I guarantee, is nodding their head if they're listening this this long. Wow. Well, you know, let's talk for a minute about you and your career, because you had a 30-year career. And we're always talking about your mission to save the world through Code 4. But, you know, you also helped a lot of people as a police officer. And let's see, where should we start? (laughs) Um, (laughs) So the, my, my period in patrol, which was about 13 years, so memorable. I mean, we responded to so many different kinds of calls and it was very busy. There was, I guess we termed the gang era in, in Seattle, a lot of homicides when I first came on in 92. Crazy times, but I really look back at those times and then some of the bravest, most honorable, awesome people I've ever met in my entire life, honestly. Uh, when I went to detectives, roughly uh, 2005, you know, I ended up in uh, property crimes uh, with a good friend of mine, still a good friend. And we did some incredible work doing addressing pattern burglaries, things like that. That kind of time period was a little weird for me just because it was after a shooting I got into in 2004, which just kind of caused me to have some real coping issues. Just seems like the, the previous 13 years 14 years had just kind of just sort of barfed itself into my system and was having a hard time coping. Well, you talk about that on your podcast on Code 4 Northwest, and this was a officer-involved shooting, you being the officer, correct? Right. And it was 
deadly force encounter? Yes. Shooting. Yeah. So that's a big deal. It, you know, at the moment it didn't seem like a big deal. Uh, just, you know, you go to training and you do your thing and, you know, I'd, it sounds harsh, but I wasn't that concerned about the person that I ended up having to shoot and kill. Maybe it's just because I believed in the mission and I was trained to do what was appropriate for the situation. Uh, but somehow, and I've, I've seen it in many officers after that who've been in shootings, it just seems to be this this trigger point that just kind of all the stuff that's been building up culminates and causes some real issues, ranging from just complete inability to cope to, I think the DSM-5 calls it acute anxiety 3, which is just your level of anxiety is, is just off the off the charts, right? It was, it was more that. It was just somehow my marriage was just suffering. My ability to cope was uh, heavily compromised. Had a very hard time to the point where I was so desperate, I, I, I actually was very close to suck-starting my gun uh, and killing myself. Wow. So, again, I got lucky. I had some really good support from, from commanders, a medical doctor, and a psychologist who were extremely helpful, and they helped me get through that. And, and life got back to being really good after that. It took about nine months or a year. Well, and I, and I wanted to mention it, too, because it is, you know of that which you speak when you talk about Code 4 Northwest. You right. have been where these folks are. And that's really the driving force for me still wanting to do help with Code 4, be the director in my retirement, that I became very concerned that if someone didn't get as lucky as I or didn't have as strong uh, kind of base coping mechanisms, that it would be a suicide completion. And that's, that's still a concern to this day. It's even more of a concern, I think, because there's so much more going on uh, that's pelting officers and first responders these days. So this experience is... Decades ago, why does suicide look like the answer? Because there have been a lot of officer suicides this year, or in the past couple of years. You know, um, just I think the lack of hope. I think the overarching goal for Code Four for peer support is is to try to reinstill some level of hope when when there's none there's none apparent to to the officer or the first responder. And I, you know, we're all armed in the case of cops. <laughs> So yeah. it's, it's right there. It's it's quick. You know, we've, we've shot guns thousands of times. So uh, Dr. Stephen Odom, who is the founder and owner of First Responder Wellness down in Costa Mesa, California, he has treated thousands of first responders of all flavors. And he said that he has never met a first responder, especially a cop, who is afraid to die. They have a hard time coping with life and everything, but that kind of ultimate question or ultimate idea, it doesn't cause them concern. They're not afraid to die. So it's like, well, you know, they've seen death. They know what death kind of looks like from the outside looking in. They have no hope. They're embarrassed. They're unhappy. And here's this, this pristine gun that's literally on your side at all times. It's a sad reality, you know. Yeah. Uh, and I think, I think when... By the time that first responders decide to get help, it's a right now kind of thing. It's not, hey, can you slap a Band-Aid on my emotions kind of thing. It's a, I'm, I'm not making it right now at all. I'm, I'm hurting very badly and I, I need some help right now. So we need to be available. You know, if we're going to be out there, we need to be, we need to be absolutely available. Not just answering the call, but providing some relevant time to, to help them process and get them to wherever they need to get. Yeah. Well, tough stuff. 
I am certainly glad that you and all the good folks at Code 4 Northwest are available to be there for the people who need you. It's an important work that you're doing. So in addition to all you do to help everyone, we were talking about your career. I didn't know, I, I went back and looked at your LinkedIn page and I did not know that you were one of the first, or if not the first on the force investigation team, the newly created. Yep. I read, I mean, I remember the DOJ and the consent decree. And so the force investigation team was one of the products of that. And I had said this to Britt Kelly in her interview, because she's on the force investigation team. It makes me so happy to know that you were one of the detectives in that unit responding to officers who have had to shoot their weapon, you know, an officer involved shooting, because you have that empathetic, you have the ability to put yourself in their shoes. So do you want to talk about what that was like for you? I, I, I am a unique example, I guess, because I've been involved in a shooting. I've been a peer supporter for people involved in shootings, and I've investigated officers who have been in shootings. So it's kind of a it's a, kind of a rare breed, I guess. I don't know if it makes me lucky or unlucky. <laughs> uh, who knows? But so one of the because everyone was so nervous and wanted to be so compliant with the DOJ kind of rules of engagement or goals, they uh, told me early on that I would not be able to be a peer supporter for anyone involved in a shooting. It was they felt it was a conflict of interest. And, you know, even if I wasn't the primary detective investigating, that I needed to stay out of that lane. So, of course, I followed orders, but I also figured out ways to, to be helpful to, to, to the officers involved. And that's all I'll say about that detail-wise. I've gotten some, some feedback through the years that I'm so happy that you're the one that was investigating my case. Or I'm so happy that, you know, I really appreciate you looked out for me when everyone else is too scared to or no one else would. So I think there's, I think it's possible to look out for the, the interests of the officers, their emotional needs, while at the same time delivering a, you know, complete, robust, full investigation of what actually happened. So I think, who knows, I think that's, it's one thing that we, we tried to bring to force investigation with Seattle. I think it worked to a certain extent. With that said, you know, listening to Britt's interview, and it's like, man, she's trying to do her best but you're in a really weird place, right? You're investigating your fellow officer. Mm. Um, well, at the same time, you're pro-mission overall, right? And, and you believe that officers are, by and large, honorable, law-abiding, respectable people who don't want to hurt people. They don't want to shoot people. So it's a, it's a really weird space. It's, you're, you're constantly on call. I, I think it should be a very short tour, honestly, you know, maybe a couple of years, and they should take that, put that person someplace you know, property crimes or someplace kind of a little bit lower, quite a bit lower speed, let mm -hmm. them sort of, you know, kind of give them a safe place to land because it's super demanding. Listening to her and her experience in force investigation, especially coupled with, you know, she had a really rough time, her first uh, few rotations of uh, being in police work I and mean, didn't make it a couple months and tragedy was uh, upon her. You know, it's just, it's a very stressful job, very stressful. So it's not my favorite time, not my favorite period of my of my career. Ah, um, okay. It was a very rich period, a lot of stuff going on, a lot of memorable stuff. I totally respect the people that I worked with there. So, what was your progression from patrol to force investigation team? 
So I went from patrol to property crimes detective. My partner, I did a fair amount of pretty cool work there with pattern burglaries and things like that. Ended up going to the major crimes task force, which was a undercover surveillance and uh, investigation unit. A lot of fun there. Didn't have to dress up, didn't have to shave. Did all kinds of really cool stuff back then. Uh, I think we did a, I think it was the longest undercover fencing operation in the history of the state. It was like a year and two months. Wow. Um, operation Oliver's Twist, we called it in the end, uh, after the captain, Dan Oliver, who uh, allowed us to go do all this cool stuff. And then I ended up going from there and was invited to asked to apply for this new force investigation team. And uh, I guess the the way it was sold was a little different than it ended up being, but it was basically, you know, I'll admit to being greedy, was unlimited overtime, take-home car, a new unit, and a ability to kind of get the DOJ taken care of so we don't have to be under consent decrees uh, for very long. So I went in, applied, and sadly they accepted me. I think I was the first or first or second in the unit. You know, you talked about Brit's incident. That loss was a loss for you. You know, Officer Brenton's murder, the department, you know, it was this time of year-ish. I mean, it was October into November with the Lakewood officers into December with Deputy Mondell. As you reflect back on that time, what would you like to share and there's a there's a term uh, anniversary event where you know the anniversary of a of a traumatic event is is a thing uh, to be you know paid attention to and I mean the, the last shooting I was in in October was October 10th 2004 then of course uh, Tim's like you said all those things you know Halloween and then the 29th of November and and then um, you know shortly after Mundell you know and then currently uh, we have the Bellevue officer killed in that same kind of general time frame and it's you know it's 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 not as painful for me now but man you looking back that's an, another you know kind of facet of my retirement now i look back and i'm like man that was just one thing after another just horrible things i mean this is just this homicidal violence against uh, police officers um, so you know i i kind of avail myself and try to, you know, kind of reach out and make sure some of the people that I know from all those incidents are good. I also know that most, if not all, the call takers with Code 4 are keenly aware of those situations. Some were even involved to some extent. So it's just, you know, I guess it's more of a time of for me of, of reflection and recommitment to doing what I can, what Code 4 can do, what I can do to use my influence to, to get others to to help their fellow people, right? You know, build the cadre of peer supporters and interested people and help command understand what they can do to help their people. Uh, right. That's that's kind of the, the stimulus that happens for me. Well, I think that is a wonderful place to end. And we will, I want to remind people again of the importance of donating because you are completely donation funded and you're doing such important work. So I will include the link to Code 4 Northwest's website where you can directly donate. It's a testament to the work that you do that so many of the people you help end up wanting to work with Code 4. For sure. Yeah, at some point I'd like to fully retire and, I don't know, <laughs> golf or fish or whatever retired people do. 
yeah, I think you're always going to be helping people. Probably so. Yeah. <laughs> you're a helper. Well, Nick, really good to have you back on the podcast. Thank you. Yeah, I, I just, you know, I, I so appreciate everything you do as a civilian. It's so wonderful, meaningful, generous of you. I hope you understand it. It makes a difference. There have been people who have listened to your podcast who have called us and decided, you know, I need to get some, some major help. So you'll probably dismiss it, but I believe you've saved some lives as well. You imagine someone in a, in a, in a patrol car or usually a patrol car, third watch, they're having a hard time. Their life's not going the way that it needs to go or that they want it to go. They, there's, there's no one to really talk to at two in the morning, but they had seen on LinkedIn or code for Facebook or Nick or your Facebook's, this podcast, they're like, well, you know, I'll just listen to that. This is an actual scenario. Started listening to some of the realities of being a police officer and this Nick Bauer guy that professes to actually be able to help people and um, ends up being motivated to call because of that podcast. They're like, you know, I think I need to do this. They were close, but they weren't really willing to kind of go to that next level, right? And your podcast got them over that edge. Wow. Well, thank you. I mean, that's anytime I wonder if I should keep doing this, I'll just remember that. Yeah, please do. Yeah. Uh, I, we, we really appreciate everything you do uh, as a civilian for us. We really do. I hope you understand that. Thank you. I really, I can't tell you how much that means to me. I do want to say in closing, if you're so inclined, please consider donating to Code 4 Northwest. I will include the link to their website in the episode notes. You are helping them help someone who needs them. I'll also include their phone number should you want to call for your own needs. For those of you outside Washington State, I'll include the links and phone numbers to the organizations Nick mentioned, including the 100 Club of Arizona, which provides services and financial aid to all public safety members throughout Arizona. And I will include the link to Copline, which many of you know about, it also offers 24-7, 100% confidential helpline operated by retired and fully trained law enforcement for officers and their families. To those of you who may just need a little morale boost, I want you to know there are plenty of civilians like me out here who support you. We just may not have the opportunity to show you, but we are here. We appreciate you. I appreciate you. I may not know you, but I know you're out there. And please believe me when I say we are out here too. Thank you to all first responders for your service. We literally could not survive without you. <laughs>